Tonight's reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to 34, and this can be found on page 1152 of the Church Bibles. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Avril. Do keep the Bible open. That's the first half of the talk. And the second half of the talk, you need these Holy Communion cards. Not that we're having communion, but uh, we're going to try and explain it, really. Um, Because it's quite easy for us to get into the habit of automatically uh, doing... Um, That's all right, it's only a picture to start with. It's quite easy for us to automatically get into the habit of doing things and we forget actually why we do them, what their meaning is. We go through the ritual without remembering the reasons. And what's more, an empty head doesn't stay empty for very long. And we can pick up all sorts of erroneous ideas which can be, you know, proved to be rather unhelpful. Now, uh, Holy Communion is known by various uh, names, the Lord's Supper, Communion, Eucharist, breaking of bread, mass. And um, we'll have cause to elaborate on each of them as we go through. We're looking at uh, its meaning. And uh, there are just two aspects of the communion that I'd like to focus on this evening. What does the service mean? And why do we do the service the way we do? So um, there we are. Um, communion points us in a number of different directions. You might have picked that up when Avril read that uh, passage from 1 Corinthians 11. 
So first of all, we look back. If you've ever worshipped with the Christian brethren, you will know that they call the service the breaking of bread, and they have a biblical warrant for doing so. When we look at the earliest recorded account of the Last Supper, Paul tells us that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We look back. We are called to remember. And we remember not the life of Jesus, but the death of Jesus. It is his broke, it is um, the broken bread and the poured wine that we focus our attention on, recalling his broken body and his shed blood. Not the Jesus of Nazareth, but the Jesus of Calvary. The New Testament is very short on graphical, on the graphical physical details about his horrific and barbaric crucifixion. But the powerful events that surround Christ's death are almost deafening in their significance. Recall, between 12 noon and 3 p.m. on Good Friday, the sky went black in the middle of the day and Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? So let's pause for a moment and just to recall the significance of that agony that Jesus felt when he was in dark, solitary isolation. He has a total sense of abandonment from God the Father. And as we remember that, we remember that that abandonment is what we would have experienced eternally had it not been for the fact that he experienced it on the cross. And then, in Luke's account, we have the curtain of the temple, which covered access to the symbolic presence of God on earth. And that curtain was split in two from top to bottom, and Jesus cried, it is finished. You see, God had found a just way to forgive sinful human beings, and so we can gain access to him through the merits of the death of Christ for our sins. So first and foremost, when we next have communion, we are remembering. We look back. But we also look up. That's the next natural direction to look. And it's obvious why. We look up in gratitude. We respond with gratitude to the Father for initiating this wonderful saving work, and for the Son in volunteering for it. Jesus, on the night before his death, gave thanks, and so should we. And that's why some of our high church friends call it the Eucharist, from the Greek word eucharistos, meaning thankful. And they're right to do so so long as they remember that in the Eucharist we are making two offerings, our offering of sacrifice and praise and the offering of our souls and bodies to be a living sacrifice to God's praise and glory. It's when ideas creep in about the minister or presbyter being a priest and offering the sacrifice of Christ again that we've departed from the biblical understanding. The official line of the Catholic Church is that the bread and wine on the altar, as they term it, 
actually become the body and blood of Christ. They would argue that uh, the wine, that the bread and the wine change substance. They transubstantiate is the word they use when the priest says the words of institution and are then offered to the Father again as Christ's sacrifice. For us in the Church of England, who are Protestant, the leader of the congregation presides at the service and by prayer, ordinary bread and wine are set apart. They stay bread and wine, but they take on a new significance. So we might say they transignify, if you like. They symbolise the body and blood of Christ. When Jesus on the Last Supper said, this is my body, he could not have meant it literally, could he? Because he's here and it's there. He means it represents my body and my blood. And they're placed on the table in the, the Church of England prayer books, whatever they are written. It's always a table. Their tables are not altars. Tables are made of wood and for eating from, and altars are made of stone and for making sacrifices on. Now, I'm not a priest in any Old Testament sense. I'm only a priest in the sense that all Christians are priests. But as a presiding minister, I and others minister or serve you with the bread and wine. We don't offer it to God at all, we offer it to you. And God provides the meal and we serve the food to you for your benefit and you give thanks for that benefit. Now thinking of it as a meal brings us to the idea of the Lord's Supper a messianic banquet, the big party at the end of time which, which will celebrate God's uh, winding up of this fallen world and the recreation of a new heaven and a new earth when he returns. And Paul writes, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, or as the service says, as we look for his coming in glory. You see, we're only visiting this planet. Our time here is only temporary. The Lord's Supper reminds us constantly of the future, of eternity. As Christians, we have hope. As the poet Browning wrote, the best is yet to be. So we look forward. We also look around. We are able to gather around this table behind me, particularly when it's where I'm standing at the moment. And in one sense, I like that greatly because the service is meant to be a sharing, a communion. Even back in the 16th century, the Anglican liturgy intended that the Lord's table should be in the body of the church with the Christians gathering around it. Probably not a total circle, but something kind of semicircle like this, possibly on the sides, as it were. You see... Five times in that 1 Corinthians passage, Paul writes of our coming together. He sees it as a time for the body of Christ to gather together with their Lord. As we said, not that Jesus is in the bread or the wine, or nor is he on the table, but that he is here at the table where his people gather, by which you remember when he said, where two or three are present, I am with you? So he is in that, he is at that service 
with us. As Archbishop Thomas Cranmer himself said, if by the real presence you mean the presence of Christ in the bread and the wine, we reject it. But if by the real presence you mean the presence of Christ with his people at the Eucharistic celebration, we affirm it. He died for believing that. We look back, we look up, we look forward, we look around, and finally, uh, we look within. Paul advises us to examine ourselves before we partake in Holy Communion. And it's here that we have perhaps most to learn. In the old Book of Common Prayer, written in the days when Communion was taken much less frequently, perhaps only three or four times a year, the ministers had to read out six pages of warnings. They're there. If you go and look at any one of those little blue books over in the corner there, you can find it in the communion service, page after page of warning. Well, between 1980 and the year 2000, which were the days of the alternative service book, the warnings got dropped. But fortunately, in 2001, with what we call common worship, they've been reinstated and we use them. Well, at least we use a summary of them. We don't read out six pages. But it's probably no bad thing to do so. Just Google Book of Common Prayer if you want to find them. And this is what um, the presiding minister says to you as we move from having had our um, time of intercession in the service to, um, uh, to uh, starting as a communion service. So... It says this, Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we gather at the Lord's table, we must recall the promises and warnings given to us in the Scriptures. Let us therefore examine ourselves and repent of our sins. Let us give thanks to God for his redemption of the world through his Son, Jesus Christ. And as we remember Christ's death for us and receive this pledge of his love, let us resolve to serve him in holiness and righteousness all the days of our life. Well, the language might be a little archaic, but it's just what Paul says in Corinthians. We need to examine ourselves because it is so easy to deceive ourselves. And to partake unworthily, Paul says, is a dangerous activity. And we want to enjoy the benefits, the personal benefits of communion. So if we're not properly prepared, we could be in trouble. He even says death or ill health. They're not ruled out uh, by Paul as punishment from God for misusing the remembrance of the Lord's death for us. Well, let's picture what's happening in the service. It is, first of all, uh, visible. Um, and there is also the invisible there is what you can see that's going on, and there is what you can't see that is going on. The visible minister who stands there representing Christ, who is the chief host presiding over the meal. And then the visible minister offers the visible bread and wine to our visible bodies. And at the same time, the invisible Christ offers us his invisible body and blood. In other words, the forgiveness that his death brought about to our invisible souls. 
And our visible bodies receive the bread and wine by eating and drinking. And our invisible souls receive forgiveness of sins by faith. As we take the bread and the wine, we're saying this represents what Christ's death achieved, forgiveness of sins. Well, I need it, and I'm going to take it, and I believe his death works. So, we look back, we look up, we look forward, we look around, and we look within. Well, our service. We ought to know why the service is arranged in the way that it is. Although we've had various prayer books, the one from 1662, which is called the Book of Common Prayer, then the Alternative Service book in 1980, and now Common Worship in 2001. It's only the first and the third of those prayer books which are authorised. And they all follow, although they were written, all of them, years after the, the martyred Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, who basically designed the service in the 1550s based on passages like that that the Apostle Paul wrote. Now our services express the gospel. First, to detect and confess sin. They announce grace, God's promise to pardon and restore the penitent through Christ. And they involve exercising faith. We express belief in God's promise. We trust him for the promised pardon. We express our gratitude in acts of praise, intercession, receiving and obeying. Now, normally, when we don't have communion, we have what are called services of the word, such as this one. And so we have um, the confession where we might say, we have erred and strayed from your ways. And then we have grace. God pardons and absolves all who truly repent and unfeignedly believe his holy gospel. And then we have faith in that pardoning grace. We have the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins. We have times of praise and intercession. We have response to the sermon. In our communion service, we follow this sequence of sin, grace, and faith. And there are three cycles, sin, grace, and faith. Two are audible, and one is visible. Two are of the word, and one is a sacrament. Though using words, we can know what is going on. So in the first of those three cycles, you might like to pick up the communion card now and look at the opening kind of um, page where we have what's titled the preparation. We have the first, cycle, the first cycle and we start with sin being acknowledged and we have what's called this collect for purity where we pray, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, right in the middle of that prayer. Then we respond by having Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. And then we have the next uh, cycle, which is uh, grace. And we have uh, 
readings from the New Testament and other parts of the Bible. And then faith is uh, expressed in response to that. We have, if you turn over, we have the creed in which we say, I or we believe if it's the Nicene Creed, I believe if it's the uh, other one, the Apostles' Creed. <laughs> Those who laugh can tell me what the Athanasian Creed says afterwards. <laughs> right, so we, we are affirming in response our faith. We then learn through the sermon and we join together in prayer. And then we have the second cycle where... Uh, We have sin acknowledged in the confession. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father, for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake. The confession you'll see is in the bottom part of what would be the third page. And then we have grace. We have the absolution. It's not written there. You only have the bit here that you participate in. The person leading has a slightly longer Um, service to use and he will say almighty God our heavenly father who in his great mercy has promised forgiveness of sins to all those who with heartfelt repentance and true faith turn to him have mercy on you pardon and deliver you from all your sins confirm and strengthen you in all goodness and bring you to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord all he's doing is saying confirming to you Look, you've taken Jesus at his word. He says if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive you your sins. So you've done your part, as long as you've done it um, with heartfelt repentance and true faith. And then he is affirming that you've done your part, Christ will deliver on his part. It's kind of backed up, God's grace, in what are called the comfortable words which uh, follow, where we say, hear the words of comfort, our Saviour Christ says, to all who truly turn to him. And various, pass- various verses of the Bible are then read out. Then there is faith, God's pr- praise to God for his goodness. We say, top of um, the page, we have faith expressed when we say, lift up your hearts, and you respond by saying, we lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And you respond, it is right to give thanks and praise. It's indeed right, it's our duty and our joy at all times, in all places, to give you thanks. And what are we giving thanks for? Answer, pardon for sin. Grateful praise for the reality of forgiveness. And then the third cycle starts again with sin and we have the prayer of humble access which you can see in the bottom right and about five lines down we say we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. Acknowledgement of sin in the prayer of humble access. This time it's starting to become more visible as well as uh, Yes, more visible as well as verbal. Then we have grace in the Eucharistic prayer. If you turn over, again about four or five lines down, we have a full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. 
And then we have grace expressed in the distribution, where we might say to you, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you, and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you, and be thankful. And then we end. Well, we don't usually, because we usually run out of time, so we haven't bothered to print it. But there's a thing called the Gloria, where perhaps we should. There are some nice musical settings to the Gloria, if any of our musicians want to rise to the challenge of uh, teaching it to us. But it, we either say it or sing it. And, it's, um, and it goes like this. Glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth. Lord God, heavenly King, almighty God and Father, we worship you, we give you thanks, we praise you for your glory. And then it goes on, Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of the Father, Lord God, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. You are seated at the right hand of the Father. Receive our prayer. For you alone are the Holy One. You alone are the Lord. You alone are the Most High, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit in the glory of God the Father. Amen. So, what we have in our service, which I completely messed this up, um, but, um, right, well, forget the big words and look at the little bit. You know, this is just a reminder that the whole service has three cycles, and it starts, each cycle starts with sin, then there is grace, then there is faith, and two of those are audible, and one of them is visible albeit with a running commentary. So I hope that whether you wish to remember it by terms of cycles, or whether you prefer the, uh, the Pauline way of looking back, looking up, looking around, looking forward, looking within, I think I said them all, that is also a very helpful way of remembering what happens at communion. And I think each of those different directions are reflected in some of the different terms and titles given to what we call the Holy Communion Service.